We continue our series in First and Second Samuel now in chapter five of First Samuel. If you would, uh, if you don't have a Bible, I still encourage you to take the one out in front of you, and you can turn to page two hundred and twenty-eight, and you'll find where we're at. Just the first five verses this morning of First uh, Samuel chapter five. This is the word of God. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who entered the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Well, this is not the first time we have encountered the Philistine god Dagon, though not as well known as Baal. Um, archaeologists have uncovered ancient documents from the 14th century uh, BC that suggest in mythology that um, uh, the, the mythology of that day, Dagon was actually uh, the father of Baal. And so in that way, he also was the god of fertility and produce. Uh, they even believe that he invented the plow. So they, they had a lot of appreciation for Dagon in their agricultural world. But in the biblical data, not the archaeological data, in the biblical data, the first place he shows up is actually in Judges, when the Philistines attribute uh, their victory over the mighty Israelite warrior Samson to Dagon. This is Judges 16.33. They said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Uh, They believe Dagon had the upper hand. That is, of course, until uh, Samson tears down Dagon's temple uh, to the ground, killing more Philistines in that act. Uh, killing more Philistines in his death than he killed in his entire life. Now, while that was evidently a, a devastating death blow to Dagon worshipers, it wasn't a death blow to Dagon uh, the god, and that comes in this chapter. And this is what we're going to learn today. This is why uh, this story is in your Bible. This is why we talks so much about, this is why the author Samuel talks so much about Dagon, these few verses, is actually so you learn something about Yahweh. So you learn something about the Lord. Learn something of God. And here we're going to learn that the God who deserves all worship will receive all worship. The God who deserves it will receive it. And that is not Dagon, it's Yahweh. And that has serious implications for you and me. Are we giving our worship? Are we giving our hearts? Are we giving our love? Are we giving our affections to the God who deserves them and the God who one day will get them anyway? And today we're going to consider that under two overall headings, Yahweh's worth and Yahweh's warning. 
Yahweh's worth, worth and Yahweh's warning. First, his worth. Well, as you recall from last time, the Philistines have recently uh, captured uh, the ark, and they brought it into one of their main cities. You see that in verse 1, Ashdod. Uh, the Philistine uh, nation, empire, whatever we want to call it, it had five major cities. It was a pentopolis. Uh, the nation was ruled by these kind of five equal capitals. There's Ashdod, Gaza, Ekron, Ashkelon, and Gath. Uh, presumably, each city had a temple dedicated to all the Philistine gods, and that's why there's still a temple for Dagon here, even though we read in Judges that Samson tore down the temple of Dagon. Well, he was in a different city. He was in Gaza, and now we are in Ashdod. And so um, the... Philistines have, have roundly defeated the Israelites twice over. You remember, uh, 4,000 they killed the first round, 30,000 the second round. Worse off, though, as they took the ark with them on this time. And uh, they bring the ark of the covenant, the ark of Yahweh, the ark that, that symbolizes God meeting with his people, uh, descending there in the tabernacle, and then later the temple uh, between the, the wings of the cherubim that touch over top of the, the, the uh, lid of the ark. Uh, that ark now is brought into a, a, an idolatrous space, Dagon's temple. And the reason they did that was, was twofold. Uh, first, it's meant to humiliate the Israelites. Um, and it should have humiliated them. It was humiliating. Uh, their holy God was being housed in the most profane of all places. They should be embarrassed. They should be ashamed. But secondly, the Philistines believed that housing Israel's God in their temple was a, a sort of way in which they could harness the power of that God and transfer it over to their God. In this way, it was sort of like a, um, a divine capture of the flag. You know, we've got your flag. It's on our territory now. We're winning. As long as we have the flag, we have the upper hand. Well, they were wrong, weren't they? While being shelved in a temple in Ashdod is dishonoring to Yahweh, it is. It is dishonoring. It is not disempowering. Let me say that again. While it's dishonoring, it is not disempowering. Now, this is what it means for God to be holy. That's something we say a lot, and it's in the Bible a lot. We talk about the holiness of God. What does that mean? It means he's set apart. It's almost as though he's untouchable, unreachable, uh, when it comes to the sin and the fallenness of this world, he's completely separate from us in that way. He is untouched by human actions or intentions, whether good or bad, actually, whether good or bad. We cannot add to God's glory, nor can we take away from it. And I think that's important to remember that we can't add to God's glory as well-intentioned worshipers as many of us are because we talk about glorifying God. We talk about we, let's glorify his name. We want to sing glory to God and, and all of the rest. What do we mean, though, when we say that? I want us to, it's a good thing to say. Let's keep saying that. I'm not, I'm not saying we're wrong to say these things. But what do we mean by it? When we say let's glorify God, are we saying let's make God more glorious? No. No, of course not. Because uh, we can never give God something that he doesn't already have. Here's how one Puritan put it, Thomas Adams. He says, 
We that cannot make his name greater can make it seem greater. We that cannot make his name greater, it's already great, we can make it seem greater. And that's what it means to glorify God, to give him the praise that's due his name. He already deserves it. Now we give it to him and we, we magnify him in that sense. We're, we're just putting a, a, a magnifying glass or maybe we can say a spotlight, whatever you want to think about. We're just highlighting what's already there. We can make his name seem greater even though we can't make it greater. And, and the inverse is true, and that's what the Philistines don't realize. We who cannot make his name lesser can make him seem lesser. We need to realize that, I should say. Even though we can't make his name lesser, we can make it seem lesser. Uh, We affirm the attribute of God's holiness, his transcendence, his otherness, his entirely otherness. He is entirely and utterly other than. His power is untouchable. The the Philistines, Philistines and perhaps the surrounding nations assume that because the ark was now on their turf, housed in a Canaanite worship center, that Yahweh was no longer worthy of worship. But they learned their error the next morning, didn't they? Look at the text. What happens? Uh, verse uh, 3. After they've set up uh, the, idol, uh, or the ark beside the idol Dagon, verse 3. When the people of Ashdod rose early in the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Uh, okay, so the um, Dagon devotees, they wake up and they get in there to worship and they're shocked, perplexed. They're unsettled. To find a strange scene, Dagon, he is off his pedestal, and he's face down on the ground in front of the ark. He is prostrate before Yahweh. He is, he is as God, is taking up the position of a reverent worshiper. The picture is so abundantly clear to us, but the people refuse to acknowledge it. Instead, they just excuse it away. Maybe, you know, a gust of wind came in in the night and um, they just put him back in his place. Of course, careful attention to the prepositions in these verses will prove that there's no gust of wind that could have done this. Look at the prepositions, verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside, Hebrew word etzel, beside Dagon. Now compare it with the scene the next morning in verse 3. Behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before a different Hebrew word, lefne, before the ark of the Lord. He's beside it the night prior, and then he's before or in front of. So perhaps the wind could knock him over. Perhaps a clumsy priest could have knocked him off next to the ark. But how can an inanimate object turn around, roll over on its belly, and scoot over to be in front of of the ark. A gust of wind can't do that. A priest could do that. A priest wouldn't have done that in in Philistia. And certainly a dumb idol can't do that. An inanimate object cannot do that. But Yahweh can. And Yahweh did. That's the answer here. Just as Dagon could not have gotten into that position on his own, he can't even get up back to his previous position. He can't get out of the dirt without Yahweh or without the people pulling him back up. So he's placed in the dirt worshiping because Yahweh yanks him down. And then he can't return to his exalted position lest the people, what's it say, put him back in his place. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? So they took Dagon 
and they put him back in his place. It's really laughable if you think about it. You know, what kind of God can't even stand up on his own? How could Dagon have, have gained victory over Israel if he can't even get up off the floor? You know, Dagon is, I've fallen and I can't get up. He needs life alert. That's the situation here. It is laughable. And this is written to be humorous. Uh, the Israelites, uh, Samuel, as, as they record this, they're saying, they're saying Psalm 2, right? The Lord looks on the attempts of man and he laughs. It's pathetic. He's pathetic. And it is laughable, that is, until we consider the ways we might be doing the very same thing. We, we might be worshiping something as life, lifeless as Dagon. Whereas God is in need of nothing, including our worship. He doesn't need our worship. The hallmark of an idol is that it, it lives off of us. It needs, it needs us. There's this, um, we could call it this, this damning dependency between us and our idols. We think we will die without what they give us, but if we don't give them our time and our attention and our affections, they themselves die. And so I want to ask you today, are you living for something that actually can't live without you? Your career, maybe? Your success, your prestige, your addictions? Is there a God in your life that if the Lord came in and knocked over, if the word of a, a friend or a, a confidant, a, a mentor, you know, speaks into your, to your heart and, and kind of knocks that idol over, is there, is there a God in your life that you would have to, as we're told here in verse 3, put back in its place? If you have to pick it up and put it in that exalted position, it is no God at all. It's a toy. It's a toy. Well, that's the whole point of this scene, that there is only one God, and even other so-called gods must give to him their worship. The psalmist writes in Psalm 97, All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. That's Psalm 97. Worship him, Yahweh, all you gods. That last phrase is picked up in Hebrews chapter 1, where the author takes it as a reference to angels. Worship him, all you angels. And that's a legitimate translation. However, given the context of Psalm 97, where he's, the psalmist is condemning the idolatry um, uh, of the people, it could very well be that there's a double meaning in this psalm. And John Calvin allows for that possibility. This is what he writes very perceptively. He says, it's as if the psalmist had said, Whatever is accounted or held as a god must quit its place and renounce its claims that God alone may be exalted. Hence, it may be gathered that the true definition of piety, of godliness, of, of, of Christianity, we could say even, is when the true God is perfectly served. And when he alone is so exalted that no creature obscures his divinity. And accordingly, if we would have... If we would not have true piety entirely destroyed amongst us, we must hold this principle. Here it is. Here's the principle. Listen up. No creature whatsoever must be exalted to us by us beyond measure. No creature. Only the creator. Only the creator. Since the Philistines were obtuse to this lesson, Yahweh doubles down. The next morning they find Dagon. He's back in the dirt this time. Um... He's decapitated also, missing his hands too. Uh, what does that mean? 
It means, uh, again, God is being humorous here. Your God, the one that you worship so much, he can't think and he can't act. Got no head, he's got no hands. Uh, He's destitute of wisdom. He's destitute of power. He's lifeless. He's dead. Of course, he always was dead, just like every idol. Uh, But this is the warning that Yahweh's giving by... by, uh, putting before this show for, for the Philistines by severing the head off of that statue and the hands off that statue. This is Yahweh's warning. We saw Yahweh's worth, that he must be worshipped by all. Now the warning that he gives to the Philistines. And the warning is this. Your God is dead, and you will be too soon. Your God is dead. You will soon be as well. That warning comes to us. I'd like you to see it in Psalm 135. It's not just for the Philistines. It's for all people. Look at Psalm 135, please. Turn there in your Bibles. And we'll look at verse 15. Psalm 135, beginning in verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. And here's the warning. Those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Philistines, your idol is dead, and you're going to be dead soon, too. The idols of the nations are worthless. They're the work of human hands. They have mouths they can't speak. They have eyes they can't see, ears they can't hear. There's no breath in them. They're not alive. And guess what happens if you worship them? You become like them. You can't understand. You can't see things. You can't hear things. You can't even live. There's no breath. We become what we worship. We become what we worship. That's a biblical principle. It's laid out here. Paul, Paul will lay it down again in the, in the New Testament in Corinthians when he says that we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord. What's, that, what, what's the upshot of that? So that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. We become what we worship, whether it's for our ruin like the Philistines or, or idol worshipers or if it's for our restoration and our redemption. For those who worship the one living and true God. Idols are dead. And so are all who trust in them. I wonder if you're sensing the wake up call that's in this text. What you worship. I I don't know if I can say it more clearly than this friends. What you worship is a matter of life and death. The Philistines, though, they're so stubborn in their idolatry, they refuse to heed the warning what happens next. Instead of Dagon becoming worthless to them, they instead worshipped the place where he died. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left. Here it is. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod Ash- to this day. It's now become a sacred space. They've completely missed the point. We ignore warnings, sadly, all the time, don't we? I mean, every day we're ignoring warnings. Every 
Every day you reach into your pantry and you pull out a snack and it's, it's telling you, don't eat me, right? If you look at the wrapper and you read the ingredients, it's saying, don't put me in your mouth. And we're like, just thank you, okay. Right? I think I talked last time about Oreos at the Cruz household. It's still a problem. It's still a problem. So we know the stuff we're putting into our bodies is not good, but we do it anyway. And no matter how many labels and restrictions that they place on the boxes, and no matter how much they hike the prices, cigarette sales still soar. Uh, the law in our nation warns of uh, penalizations, imprisonment, but people still steal. They still cheat on taxes. They still commit all sorts of crimes. Uh, more seriously, there are instances where the stubborn resistance to warning can have disastrous effects for, for many people, for dozens, hundreds of people. Uh, one time that happened in our own backyard here in Michigan, back in the early 1900s, the Eastland operated as a passenger ship that could carry up to 2,500 passengers between uh, Chicago and Michigan City back in the uh, early 1900s, the Eastland. Well, on July 24th, 1915, the Eastland was preparing to set sail with over 2,200 passengers on board. However, a number of the passengers said the ship felt unstable to them. And so some crew members also expressed concerns about the ship's stability. But despite the warnings, uh, the Eastland set sail as scheduled, and it capsized in the Chicago River, barely making it out of port. It overturned quickly. It trapped passengers, crew members inside. In the end, 844 people lost their lives. Why? Because they didn't heed a warning. It became uh, one of the worst shipwrecks in Great Lakes history just because people didn't heed a warning. The Philistines missed the point. They ignored the warning. Don't you dare miss the warning today. Don't miss it. Don't miss the warning. It's as serious as life and death. Until you put your faith in the living God, the resurrected Christ, and the spirit of life, you yourself cannot live. Until you put your, your heart, your, your, your affections, everything you have, your life into the hands of the one living and true God, you'll be living a farce. Your life will be false. Your life will not really be living. But to worship the living and the true God makes us alive and true as well. Don't miss the warning. But let me leave you with a word of hope and inspiration, especially to you struggling believer today. Maybe you're here and, and you love the Lord. You really do. And yet you still feel that pull of idolatry. You still feel drawn to worthless things. Uh, greed. Pride. Pornography. Gambling. Alcohol. Fill in the blank. You, you, and, and you hate it. You want to love the Lord more than it. In fact, you would say, I do love the Lord more than this. And yet I keep falling back. And you're, you're struggling. And so then you start to fear, Right? You fear your love for Christ is, is counterfeit. Maybe you're, maybe you're not the real deal. Maybe you're not strong enough. Maybe you're not cut out for this Christian thing. Maybe you're going to end up like Dagon. 
slain before a holy God whom you do not serve well enough? Well, I want to give you some hope. And actually, I think the text gives us the hope. And the hope is this. If you believe on Jesus Christ, no matter how weak your faith is, if you believe on Jesus Christ, if you trust in him, he has taken up residence in your heart. What we have in this chapter is God taking up residence, as it were, in a place of idolatry. Guess what our hearts are before Christ? They're factory vitals. It's a house of idolatry. It's a temple of Satan. That's what our hearts are. And when Christ takes up residence in our hearts, who wins? The idols or him? He wins. Every time. Every time. That's what 1 Samuel's proving to us. It proves that God isn't good at sharing spaces with his rivals. His holiness doesn't allow it. Rather than the presence of an idol profane his holiness, his holiness puts an end to their presence. He silences them. He sanctifies all who come near. If Christ is in your heart by faith, I need you to listen to me on this. It makes all the difference. If Christ is in your heart by faith, no one and nothing can remove him from your heart. He takes up his residency there permanently, perfectly, powerfully. And any idol that tries to creep in, he cuts off its head, he cuts off its hands, and he lays it in the dirt. He says, bury it. It's dead. That's what it means to have the living Lord in your life. So if the Lord has come near to your heart, he will sanctify you. And those other gods you feel drawn to, they will slowly but surely fall down dead one by one. Christ, he is the true ark of the covenant. And when he really, truly enters the heart of fallen man, which apart from him is nothing other than a temple to the devil, then all idols will fall. Every attempt to set them up again will be in vain. Sin will be forsaken, for the Lord will claim and the Lord will possess the throne, and the throne is your heart. Amen? What a God we serve. Let's pray to him now. Father, we thank you for the promise of the gospel that tells us that once we have Christ, we can never lose him. And we are most prone to doubt that when we fight sin. And yet here we see in 1 Samuel 5 how you give a death blow to sin and and specifically to idolatry. Lord, come into our hearts. That is our prayer. I pray that if there's any here today who have not met you as the Savior of their souls, that you would reveal yourself and that you would kick down the door and that you would storm into their souls, storm into their hearts, that you would take up the proper place of the throne of their hearts and that you would cast down dead every idol. Do that in all of our hearts, Lord. And give us that courage, even as we continually struggle, that that we know that in the end, you will never be supplanted from your throne, for you are a mighty king. You are the living God, and to have you is to have life itself. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.